is Peely Reese along with Ernie Harwell at Bush Stadium in St. Louis. We're going to the bottom half of the second inning. There's no score in this ball game. In fact, there's only one hit by Mickey Stanton, the shortstop. The first hitter for the Cardinals will be Orlando Cepeda. Ernie? Well, it's been uh, Mr. Gibson so far as he has uh, thrown that strikeout pitch, banning five Tigers in two innings, and the last four Detroiters have gone down on strikes. Day. I am Ron Collins, the general manager of the Yellow Springs Nine, and as always, I am joined by Ted Schmidt, general manager to be determined, uh, whichever. Uh, happy Saturday, Ted. Uh, glad to be talking again. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's nice to nice to get going, Ron. Uh, what do we have today? What do we have today? The uh, the BBA calendar has turned to June 23rd, I think. So we're getting uh, nearing the halfway mark. Standings are beginning to settle out a little bit. Let's see. I think we had Justin Jackson hit his 30, uh, 300th home run for the milestone of the of the day. And the thing that I, the only thing that I think I will remember about Justin Jackson's 300th home run because Justin Jackson is not my favorite player of all time. I I, I continue to wonder why he's considered great but then he hit 300 home runs but then in his little news article he says he doesn't remember his first home run and i don't either <laughs> <laughs> yeah but good I, on justin jess for hitting some, 300 home runs some of these news articles are um they're interesting in that i've seen that a couple times like yeah i don't remember the first one i have never heard a player say that like in real life i feel like every one of them can tell you about their first hit or you know the I maybe I'm wrong, but it it seems like we have a disproportionate number of professional baseball players who do not remember their first accomplishments. <laughs> um, That's probably true. What what can you say about that? Uh, maybe maybe steroids or something caused them to not be able to have their mental function occur. But I I honestly could not imagine being somebody who could not remember their first home run. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first junior high bass, the first time I got subbed into a junior high basketball game. I don't remember <laughs> hardly anything else, but like, I remember the first basket I scored, you know, like a, I don't know, you know, like I just don't. Um, yeah, there you go. And I'm well, not, I also thought I would jump in with a little bit of an update from our conversation, ending conversation last episode where we were talking about one whole park. I don't know if you've noticed, but he got his first start with San Fernando this week. And it did not go well. Uh, he got kind of he gave up three home runs against Twin Cities, so the 17-year-old debut was was not a great success. But he did manage to bump his velocity one one notch. See, that's so, what I saw. If I'm Randy Wiegan, I'm thrilled. I don't care about that start. And now he throws 94 to 96, and he's a 656 pitcher. If that was if he got a tick of fast of actual fastball rating out of that, I would be early returns. If I were Randy Wiegan, I'd be very pleased with. And he's not hurt yet. Right. Like the I think the outcome we all expect with stuff like this is an immediate UCL injury or shoulder injury. <laughs> um, that hasn't happened yet. So there you go. Just to kind of do the, the quick close on the classic stuff. Right. With the 
with the news and milestones and, and whatnot, looking at probably the one major injury that uh, makes a difference uh, that happened this time was Louisville's George or Jorge Moran. I've seen Jorge or, or George pronounced both ways. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I don't know which one it is in this case. Shaw's not been real lucky with the injury bug this year. And the recent, as you, know, you and I were talking before the show, the recent uh, Gutierrez trade thinned out his infield depth somewhat. You know, he's already got his young prospects in um, Medrano and Mendoza. They're already in the lineup. This offense will will survive this loss, even if he's just kind of playing a glove first ninth place hitter the rest of the season. Um, yeah, in that spot he'll be okay. But it's a loss, and you know, again, that's that division. If I was if I was Niles, I would be thrilled to see that injury. Maybe not, but I never want to win because somebody else got hurt. But that division's so competitive that a win or two. Even if that's probably the low end of what this is, I would say if he goes from there to just kind of a replacement level, it's probably a couple wins over the course of the season, and that that could matter. I think now maybe that is the difference in a playoff spot. You know, it was, it's hard to think about Louisville not making the playoffs uh, given what they were at the beginning of the season, but as you look at the standings now, and you know you've got a pretty impressive lead at this point. It seems like Hawaii and Long Beach and Seattle are going to be competitive for that top spot. But, you know, as as things currently stand, you know, Louisville's right at the bottom of the wildcard race. They don't have a lot of ground to give. And you've got neck and neck with Nashville, Omaha's and uh, Chicago are chomping at their heels. So this could, you know, I, wins the tipping point, right? Can Louisville take another injury? Right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. And, and it uh, fits in that category of, you know, you... As a general manager, no one is no one is ever going to uh, mistake Shaw anymore, uh, right? Shaw uh, Stephen Shaw is a fantastic general manager. He put his chips on the table and he made a choice. Literally a sim later, the fates have not uh, smiled kindly on that. Uh, so you can make all the right moves. I think that was a good move that he made to move Gutierrez. You can argue it uh, a couple of different ways, but. Now he's going to have to deal with another problem. And the issue of him making the playoffs is now a little bit, uh, there's some uncertainty in that. A lot of it probably depends on how good Seattle and San Fernando actually are, whether they stay in the in the mix or not. Because I don't think anyone is going to doubt that Hawaii is um, is a definitely a cream of the, you know, cream at the top team for uh, the Pacific Division, Long Beach's free agent jump seems to have made them a pretty certain it's not surprising to see them at the top we talked about seattle and their pythagorean overperformance last time and san fernando that pitching staff continues to be on a bit of a of a uh, wax and string and tape it all together kind of thing so we'll see what happens there if those guys are still pretty strong though then that makes the omaha louisville chicago thing a lot more of a death match when it comes right down to it. So you know that like San Fernando has a run differential that is only ten runs worse than Louisville. Louisville's plus sixty eight and San Fernando's plus fifty eight. Mm-hmm. It is like it's at the point where like, am I giving Randy enough credit? <laughs> like, I mean, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I, I truly mean like, I he's a friend, and I consider Randy to be a very solid GM. Um, a master at building through trades and, you know, really good at kind of the just churn out, throwing offenses, 
and patch a pitching staff together and his ability to trade to extend his window or go into a short one year down one to two year down period and come right back with the same sorts of teams is, is pretty impressive. I'm always looking at his pitching staffs going, I don't, I don't know, man. And like, I get, maybe he does know, man, you know, <laughs> well, he's been able to get enough pitching historically to uh, make the run differential work. But these last couple of years, though, have not looked like they should, and they have, and that's two years, and I think I have to start going, Ted, do you not know something? You know, like, is there a, <laughs> is there a thing that you, I mean, well, there's we'll lots of things. We'll see what things. happens. We'll see what things. happens. You know, the, the one whole park thing is, um, <laughs> if he keeps throwing, if he keeps throwing one whole park out, and one whole park keeps giving up four or five runs in four or five innings, then we'll see that run differential change. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that's a wild card. You just don't know what is going to happen. And if I were a Loserville fan, I would be I'd be looking at those and asking myself those same exact questions when it came to uh, San Fernando. And uh, it made that leads me into a topic I wanted to talk about a little bit this week: Aki Kondo in in Omaha. You know, Aki Kondo, because one of the questions about Louisville's situation is how good is actually Omaha? And I'm going to fall back into Chicago, too, before it's all said and done, because they've got some interesting things going on. Uh, Omaha is sitting at 38 and 34 right now. And we all know that Justin Niles threw down that huge contract for Aki Kondo. And the question of whether he was really an ace or not was kind of a off-season topic of good discussion and all sorts of good stuff like that. Kondo had a horrible April. He just started off horribly, right? He was pretty good in May, though, and now uh, Omaha is making a bit of a run. They won their last six games, and Aki Kondo is 4-0 and with a 1.29 ERA in June. Something that I wanted to throw out here, Aki Kondo, you know, a couple of was it in 20 or 21? I think it was in 20 when Out of the Park began to show us the adaptability per, uh, personality trait. And Aki Kondo's adaptability is low. It makes me wonder whether it took Aki Kondo a month or six weeks just to get familiar with this new surroundings. And now he, you're, you're seeing the picture that he actually is. If that is true, then Omaha is a very dangerous team right now. What are your thoughts about Aki Kondo right this minute? What well, are your thoughts about my conspiracy theory supposition of adaptability in this? I have no uh, idea influence. what they do with adaptability. I think that's a plausible theory. I have no clue as to what it means or how it works or what it affects. I think that his rough start is just good old small sample size and bad luck. I think it's human nature to try to want to read too much into things. And when he got off to a bad start, and I, I feel like when he got off to a bad start, it is very natural to be, you know, do like here's the, here's the end of this. But it's, you know, that's silly. It's the the very best pitchers of all time have had six ERAs for one month, multiple times throughout their career, over and over and over again. It doesn't take much. I think what we can say about him is that was a real, that was not a relative rating shift. That was a real life movement bump. He is seemingly a better pitcher now. And his home runs per nine this year is 1.4. His career rate is 1.5. So it sounds like I just contradicted myself. But that first month was awful, like legitimately awful. And the last couple months, it's it's not been one. You know, it's, it's moved all the way down to 1.4, despite an outlier month. I think 
Yeah, I still think it's a, I just, it's so much money. Yeah, I think this will be fine. The other thing about Omaha is if they ever start to hit, look out. And maybe that's what's happened this last sim is they've kind of, you know, put it all together. We did curse Stephen Clulo. I don't know if you noticed that, but um, you and I pretty much uh, <laughs> ruined things. Well, this last sim, he rebounded a little bit, but uh, we, we talked about him and he immediately tanked. So I felt a little bad about that. Yeah, I'm sorry about that, Justin. That wasn't yeah. really my intention. But on the other hand, I think that I ended up, I think Yellow Springs pummeled Clulo one time. So so I guess I'll take whatever credit. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, you look at, you know, they've got like, you know, Antolin, who they picked up, is, you know, a good quality hitter. Orlando Ordonez is good. Andre Lai, as long as he doesn't have left-handed pitching, is great. Wilson Estrada is great. They've ta- made noise about trading Donald Miller just due to the glut of bats they have and him being a DH. And, you know, I think they can even probably afford to do that. You know, Emilio Morales is now down in the seven hole which at this point in his career is probably fine, but also it just shows you the depth of their quality offense so that they, they can afford to put a 40 home run guy in the seven hole, even if yeah. he does belong there. Um, so, well, and I think, I mean, I've made no uh, bones about it before. I think that in reality, given his career OBP, he's more effective in that six, seven right. slot, right? Because, and I, I mean this sincerely. I mean, if you have a 310 OBP in your number three slot or number four slot, what you've got is a really streaky team that can pummel you sometimes and, and go cold others, which is exactly what Omaha's offense has been for some time. It's always been a fearsome offense. Uh, Justin has always put offensive players on the field, but their problem has always historically been pitching. I think their pitching is coming around. I'm completely on your on board with your comment that if this hitting is real, that, that's a team to uh, a team to watch. Yeah, and they've got you know you got Timo Dooley and Kondo and Hernandez going one two three, and then you know Hayashi and Whitlock um, are solid options in the bullpen. They might look to maybe add another relief arm at some point, or um, they've got some young starters that they could bring up, and if they do and choose to move Jose Lima to the pen. Maybe Lima can be that kind of eating, eating because he's hasn't, he's really under impressed as a starter. So I think it might be time to look at him as a, as a bullpen arm or some other role. If he can become a quality reliever, that solves that problem. And they, like I said, they do have the young starting arms to get at least equal production to his current six ERA. So this is this is a good team, and I didn't see this before the season started. I think of the, the you know I I'd, I'd thought of them having an aging bunch of bats. I didn't notice the you know Ordonez and Lai, who was a former California prospect, yeah. um, and who just bumped like crazy. And you know Wilson Estrada, I, I knew existed, but I really there were so there are so many good young hitters right now that it's just kind of hard to remember all of them. <laughs> Well, let me stay inside the Heartland for a minute, and and let's talk a little bit about the other team that I mentioned a little bit ago, and that is Chicago, who I think has uh, started out of the gate pretty in a way that most people would consider underperforming a little bit. Chicago is has has been for the past year or three viewed as a team that should compete a bit inside the Heartland, and um, and I admit I was a little bit concerned with Chicago. Uh, as a Yellow Springs guy going through, they, again, they started poorly. Uh, last year, if you look at their 
ball club, their uh, pitching was at the very top of the tier. Their hitting was kind of uh, on the low side, but then their park is a deep pitcher's park. So that kind of fits the whole category of if you're going to be good at something, be good at what your park says. This year, though, actually their hitting is kind of, I mean, they're scoring some runs. They're scoring more runs than they scored last year, but their pitching has just kind of not it's just kind of gotten moldy. <laughs> what are your thoughts about Chicago right now? They they are having a really good month. They're getting themselves back into the mix a little bit. I think they've got more work to do. Do you think this month is a proper indicator of what's to come or or is is it too late? I think that this month is the way that this month is an indicator of what's to come for Chicago is that by itself it's not combined with their slow start it is so as constructed um i just feel like chicago is doomed to be a bunch of sputtering starts and never fully get going they have good pitching i don't know that it's great their bullpen is is superb outstanding bullpen um and they have a couple really impressive starters but I think the back end of the rotation leaves a little bit to be desired. So I'm not sure that they are, you know, they're not a pitching juggernaut like San Antonio was last year. They're close, but they're not quite there. And the thing that's going to hold them back is I don't believe in this offense as it is built. They have to hit. They have to, they do not walk at all. And um, it is very hard. I found like one of the, when you invest heavily in pitching, um, it is hard to get good hitters. There's just, you know, you don't have resources to do it unless you go into the tank and come out with a bunch of these young prospects or you just get lucky in prospect acquisition. Um, but if you're building a team kind of the way I do and the way I've seen uh, Chicago come together, where you're just kind of, you know, being a good custodian of your resources and building one strength and then kind of trying to patch together the other part of it, it is hard to have a good offense and where you tend to struggle is on base percentage. Um, good quality hitters that also walk are very hard to come by. And I think Chicago has just unfortunately been, been unable to assemble the right cast of hitters to support their pitching. And what tends to happen in that case is that you, you, you have a bad month because you don't hit or your team decides to hit, but maybe your pitching just isn't elite that month. And when that happens, you tend to, hang around 500, maybe a little bit under. And then you'll have a month like this one where you're really, you know, you get it going. You think I'm here. I'm, you know, I got it. They're going now. Your, your hitting is going to quit on you. You know, it just is. And that's kind of what I think about Chicago. They're just, they're so close. They're just so close. But I think as constructed, this team will kind of yo-yo around and play with your emotions and make you very, very frustrated. And I've been there. <laughs> it's, it's just... I don't know. That's that's my impression. I, hopefully I didn't. I kind of rambled on there a little bit. No, I think that's good. The um, the on-base percentage thing is definitely a issue for them. But the thing that I have found intriguing, uh, again, about watching them is is um, I'm actually kind of interested. I should dig some into their games, into their game logs a little bit more. Um, I was not too surprised when their pitching came out slow 
and starts to ramp back up. What I am surprised at, and I don't know how they've constructed it, I don't know if they're just getting lucky or what, but they're scoring run. They're like, I think they're like six in the league, in the Frick League in runs scored, which is unusual for Chicago because of that park. And like you said, I don't tend to think of them as being huge run scorers, despite the fact that they have several good hitters, right? I'm, they, they've got we, the conversation that we have occasionally about or Emilio Morales. Very good hitter. Best slot is number six or seven, so that his on-base percentage is not clogging things at the beginning. Um, I'm looking at Diesel Dave in the cleanup spot. Yeah, I mean, you look at those kinds of guys, and they're they're good hitters. They're people you like to have on your team. Yep. You know, but like, you know, the Dusty Baker. I don't like walks because they clog up the base paths. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think that's a bit of a problem, right? So uh, when I look at his team, I don't expect to see an upper half uh, run scoring offense. But with his pitching, he doesn't need to have an upper half run scoring offense. What he's got right now is a just barely upper half run scoring offense with the pitching staff that has not done done the job yet. And so, yeah, uh, the statistician in me says that you would expect his offense to, uh, you expect the Vic Kaleka offense to slip down, but um, how far will it slip if the pitching staff is actually going to throw the way that it should be throwing? I don't know. Um, I would, I would it's expect, just an interesting situation. I would expect that if this pitching staff throws like a, you know, second best in the league or third best in the league, which it could very well be pitching staff, um, the offense will become a 10th place offense. It just, that's just how it works. Um, yeah. you don't, I, I, this, this lineup is over, overachieving. Um, and yeah, not, but not because if it, if it performs that way going forward, that would actually be, like I said, I think they were like number two or three in pitching last year and number 14 or 15 in offense last year. Right. But that's not, uh, that's so not a realistic up... way to plan, right? If I keep getting lucky and then I stop getting unlucky, like that's, that's not a, no, like you should plan for if luck works out as luck normally does, what do I have? Not if I get the very best out of this thing that I've already been getting the very best out of, but also the thing that I've not been getting the best out of reverts to normal. Like that's your, you know, you're supposing two changes from a pattern that's established. And even one of those changes is a regression to the mean. You can't assume uh, continued, you know, if you, if you expect your, pitching to regress to the mean, then you should also expect your, your hitting to regress to its two talents. And, and the problem that Chicago has is this is the kind of offense that can grind to a halt. Yes, when those when they're making contact, they do some damage. But um, when they're having to, if they have to rely more on the, you know, taking a free pass here and there, and th it's not going to happen. Um, yeah, they rely very heavily on the upper half of their offense. Right. At this stage. So that's a... It, it just, it's a, he's a, it, Chicago is an interesting team and um, that might suggest that they are a candidate for being a buyer at the, at the deadline or in the next six weeks, you know, as we talked last waiting and waiting until the deadline may or may not be the right move for him. Um, but then that's a, a sensitive question because they're down so far after banking so many losses that how much are they willing to throw their chips in on the, um, only medium possible payback. These things are the are what stories are made of. <laughs> yeah, and and I don't mean I don't um, I don't want Vic to think that I am in any way disparaging the team that he's constructed. I think this is a good team, and I think that in a lot of divisions and a lot of years, this is a playoff team. 
its offense probably shouldn't be its strength, as you've noticed. The strength should be the pitching, and this should be kind of, you know, a top-tier pitching with good enough offense to get by pictures, what this looks like. They're doing the opposite right now, but it's just the results are strange given the personnel, and unfortunately the way the heartland is, kind of a playoff team might not be enough at the moment to actually get into the playoffs, and that's just stinks when that happens. I'm sure that you know, I've been a GM in those shoes before where you're like, man, I've, I've put together a pretty good group of players. And then you look at the rest of your division and you're like, and they have a bunch of all-stars. You know, it's like, why, why do four teams in my division have just a collection of multiple should be all-stars, more all-stars than we even have all-star slots. So yeah, there you go. And Chicago has historically, uh, as Vic has brought them up the curve, you know he's made a he's made a made good uh, uh, good team news fodder out of his stop and start kind of teams mentality. It will go on a big streak and then it'll fall back and sim by sim it will go. Uh, the Sox will go five and one one sim and one and five the next sim. So that kind of fits your pattern of of what you're talking about. Well, the things that make a team stutter, right? Like if your weak link is the offense then um, if you're poor in on-base percentage, you will stutter. Teams that rely on on putting the ball in play um, that aren't elite hitters, um, that's what makes you stop and start. Um, if your weak side is your pitching, it's not having a back end of your rotation. That makes mm-hmm. you know, It's hard to go on a long tear when your fourth and fifth starters stink. Yeah. A lot of times you don't have a choice. You have to decide where you want your weakness to be. Or just, yeah, I mean, if you have a big hole any place when it gets down to it, you know, we talked about weak link bullpen, right? If you have four guys at the bottom of your bullpen, then you are subject to suspect for a, uh, uh, because they got to pitch sometime. (laughs) Anytime that you have to use a skill set that has a hole in your team, then you're suspect to uh, suddenly hitting the place where the engine chugs because it's not getting fuel. but over 162 games, you figure that happens a few times and you're okay. And as long as it doesn't happen in October while you're in the playoffs, then you have a shot of actually winning. I would suggest that in a nutshell, that's kind of the mentality of the teams that are fine with being 80 to 85 win teams and hoping that they jump in and compete on occasion, right? I think that kind of fits. You find the kind of players you can can manage in those zones, but that may be going out on a very thin limb uh, that doesn't actually hold uh, mixing my metaphors going out on a thin limb, thin, thin limb that doesn't hold water. <laughs> well, the limb just has a bunch of buckets hanging from there it. You go. It's a bucket tree. Well, let me, let me go to what I think is the last topic that I had in my mind here in, I haven't had enough time to really dig into it. So I have to apologize a little bit. I'm interested in your thoughts. I saw a day or three ago, uh, Las Vegas uh, general manager and commissioner Matt Rechtenwald put a little blurb on on a Slack about Sean Huber and that he hasn't gotten any offers on Sean Huber yet. And it made I put a quickie response on it. I wonder what the actual trade market is for Sean Huber right now as a 32 year old uh, superstar, left handed. Um, relief pitcher 
on a pricey contract for a reliever, right? 13 million this year, 12 next team options for 11 and 10. Obviously huge value and probably making that kind of value at this stage since he is able to throw those 150 inning seasons, right? I think he's a bargain. I mean, 13 million for a five for five wins worth of pitcher. I take that any time. I do think that there has been a kind of a sea change in pitcher usage, right, over the last four or five seasons that started with Huber. Actually, maybe Peter Grady. Uh, yeah, I think, think Huber, Peter Grady's probably the real start, but. But Huber was a very, very quick follower and he's always been excellent. It's just, you know, he was a, he was a three win reliever before we realized we could double the innings that you would get out of him. But I think that it is still the longest time the, do- the dogma has been that you just don't give up good assets for relief pitchers. And I think part of the struggle, I don't think there's any one thing that explains uh, Rex's inability to find a suitor for Huber. It's, it's a combination. One of them is that dogma about pay- overpaying in prospects for relievers. Part of that, I think, is a lot, is it's very difficult to change our mind about usage and what that's worth. Part of it is that OTP isn't very realistic. This thing that we're doing with relievers right now, that doesn't exist. When you use a reliever like that in real life, they last a year or two and then they're junk. So we don't have a good real life comparison for this. And then, you know, then there's his age. There's his age. And yes, he's been worth it but I don't know that there's much of a guarantee that it will continue to be. And I think there's probably an idea that, you know, how much do I have to give up? I'm Maybe I just don't make the offer because I'm not willing to, you know, am I going to give out two quality prospects, which I think is what you would have to, a minimum, right, of, of two quality prospects or a young, established, good, big leaguer. You know, maybe not an elite player like Huber, but at least good. And... Maybe people, you know, it's just, I, I just can't make myself do it. You know, the other, the other idea is how much value is there in these Uber relievers? Or is it just that they look cool from a stat line? But is it actually cheaper to get the same result with four guys? You know, I, do you need to concentrate all of your relief innings into, and I'm just making this up as I go. I have no analysis of this that I've ever done, but do you need to concentrate? all of your relief innings into three players and pay them appropriately. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And I'm going to, I definitely want to remember to come back to that, put a, a short term pin in that. Cause the one thing that I want to riff off of uh, what was going through my mind when I said, is there a market for Sean Huber? I have liked your overall uh, take on what his value package kind of is. Um, you know, to me, when I think of what is a market, Um, What I intend to do to try to answer that question is who are the teams who might take Sean Huber sitting here on June, uh, what, 23rd of 2044, right? The market is show me a contender that has either dollars in their cap or the wiggle room to be able to push off a bad contract that that Recti would then have to eat and do some other stuff with who doesn't already have a big inning reliever, right? Because you're not going to go get a 150 inning reliever if you already have a 150 inning reliever who is top notch and has, as you were talking about, at least two and maybe three 
uh, or four interesting, you know, depending on the scale of value, right? I mean, two really top prospects or maybe four really interesting prospects that are uh, willing to give them away for uh, a 32-year-old pitcher uh, with Huber's contract, which is not bad. I mean, you can get out of that contract pretty easily if things go south, but that's the market. I don't know what that market is right now because I haven't actually gone through all of the contenders to look at their cap space and or people that they could move to make the cap space work and what their prospect pool is like. Right. Well, I have been doing my very good, my very best to be a good podcast partner. And while you have been explaining the problem, the dilemma, I have been looking into it. And I can tell you in the Heartland division, there is no one that should pick up Huber. You don't need it. Uh, Nashville doesn't. Nashville has good relievers. Uh, Louisville has good relievers. Omaha has could use the arm, but has they can't take that contract, especially with the kids they have to pay. Rockville has no need. New Orleans has no need. Um, Brook, uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn could use the arm. It's the you know they're at 106 million already next year. Right. Um, the other issue with Brooklyn is I don't think that they have the prospects. I don't think that Brooklyn. Yep, I don't think Brooklyn has the prospects. Doesn't make sense for Jacksonville to make that move, and then you start to get to the point where none of those teams should add anything. Calgary has had injuries, and they might actually at this point be able to use the depth. But again, and they could fit the. Ooh, they'd be close. I mean, that's the rest of their cap space, and they've got young guys that are going to have to get paid. You know, I mean, we're. Uh, right. Off the top of my head, San Antonio and Mexico City aren't a good fit. So we're left to the Pacific, you know, and it's, but we're through three quarters of the teams and you're right, there just isn't. Right. And I think that's the point that I was trying to get to here is that every year I hear, well, I'm trying to move this superstar player and nobody wants him. And I go, well, I, a couple of seasons ago, I did that with Justin Jackson back. Omaha was trying to move. I think it was Omaha was either trying to move or ended up trading for him. I don't remember which, <laughs> you know, was trying to move Justin Jackson. And he was uh, much, even uh, more peaky than he was is right now. Right. I mean, he's he puts up numbers. I just he's not my favorite kind of player. But I was going through and looking at, OK, you're talking about a left fielder. And I went through that whole thing. Who are the possible candidates? What do they have? What is the reality is the market is very slim uh, sometimes for some of these kinds of players because uh, because you have already paid them either what they're worth or something in that range. And they have a contract that, stend, that extends out beyond this year. Right. It's fairly easy to move a player like a Sin Mai if Jacksonville decides to move Sin Mai, who we've talked about many times. They could do it quite simply by saying, we'll just pay him. Yeah, we'll just eat the year, <laughs> right? But on a multi-year deal, like Recti would be stupid to eat. I don't know about stupid. It's depending on how long he's going to take to turn Vegas around. Maybe the solution here to get a good return is that you do eat a couple years of this pro, of this contract. Right. Or, but you know the the Brewster is so competitive. There are not teams at, that are competing that aren't pushing the salary cap in, in current or future years. We don't have that anymore. I think at one point we did have contenders that could add big salaries. That's not a thing, and I don't think that's going to be a thing. I think our GMs are so good as a group that that the era of I'm in first or second place and I can take on even a $15 million deal is gone for the most part. I mean, it'll, there'll be fits now and again, but the idea that there's going to be multiple suitors for that, it probably just isn't very realistic. 
Yeah, I think there will be times. I mean, there are times where that is a good idea. It's just that it's not uh, given and or, or commonplace anymore. Or right? like, yeah, or commonplace, or you know, or when somebody does it because they're just fun. You know, they want to try to throw all their chips in a basket and make things happen. And all of those things are possible. But you know, that's it is true that that most likely. For example, if uh, God, I, I don't, I the thought went through my head and I don't even want to vocalize it, right? So I'll knock on wood all over the place. Turn in O'Mac and goes down next week with a season ending injury. I am actually deep enough. I may decide that I'm fine with being able to just deal with it. But at that stage, I might look at Sean Huber and if Recti were to actually say, I will lead his whole salary, you know, with some of the conversations we've had before about my concerns in a couple of seasons, I might actually say, okay, I will empty my my um, I will change my script and I will empty my farm system. I doubt that that will happen. But when I'm there, I might actually make that decision, right? There, You could say that's a situation where a GM will actually decide I'm going to go all in and, and that will work. But I think that especially in average out-of-the-park leagues, there are people who will just do that no matter what. Right. Um, I, have to, I have to, to pass the leak now. I have to do it. Like I'm all, I'm all in. Every, and, yeah, we're... Right. I think it is. GMs. I think it is fairly rare to find a um, a BBA GM who does not have a plan for what they're trying to accomplish right. before it's all said and done. And so the idea is, do they want to change their plan to include Sean Huber at age 32? Yeah. I don't know. That's. I, I just wanted to have that conversation because the Sean Huber will immediately improve the any team's ability to win a division. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's no nobody that doesn't have a player that they could replace with him that will be a big upgrade that will not i mean there will not be at least a, a couple even from this point in the season on probably a couple wins worth of upgrade which is yeah. you know two wins upgrade in the, in the you know 40 percent of the way into a season is a tremendous upgrade while you were talking i finished up looking i'm not even looking at prospects and i can't find a fit for him in terms of salary yeah, and granted, I don't know these teams. Maybe we got money coming off the books or things they don't plan to pick up. But it, uh, things they don't plan to pick up. But a cursory look, there just so, isn't. There's nothing. The, the main point there is, is if Recti is going to trade Sean Huber, he's going to have to do some work. He's going to yeah. have to find a way to make it happen. And to your point, if you're really motivated to trade somebody, you can trade somebody. That's. Yeah. Um, well, but it's not as simple as well. I'm just going to throw this guy out onto the onto the trade block and 16 teams are going to send me PMs and I'm going to get into a bidding war that most likely not going to happen in these situations. And I, I think the league has moved away from that in general. The, even when the, like I've seen a couple people complain uh, privately or publicly, I guess about, um, you know, I put my 24 year old superstar on the block simply kind of, you know, I've, got some financial stuff coming up i was kind of curious as to what the what the market would show and they're like all i got were like three lowball offers and i just think that maybe as you said every team has a plan now we're not we're not in the era of i'm playing it off the cuff it's every team's got a this is what i'm doing and so if you want someone to buy your player you're going to have to sell them to them you're going to have to convince them to alter their plan and so if you're surprised that you put out your 24 year old superstar and you're not, people aren't banging your door down. 
Well, it's, it's because they hadn't thought about it until then. And until you, they're probably thinking, this guy's going to want a buttload. I've got plans for all those contracts. I don't even, whereas if you go to that guy and say, Hey, this is, you know, like make the trade for them, make the, um, you know, you don't have to come up with a cold call proposal, but I just think we're not in the Brewster isn't in an era of people responding to trade blocks with, like you said, like 19 PMs of quality offers in it. Right. It's just not going to happen. And largely. Right. And I will fully admit uh, out in the open here that I am, I'll call it picking on Recti. I'm, I'm, I'm riffing off, off Recti's comment because Matt is a guy who will do the work and it yeah, is absolutely. a master trader, right? I don't yeah. want to pick on somebody <laughs> who I don't um, know. <laughs> yeah. They're, well, and he's frame not, of reference. So. He's not the only one that's that's made these comments, right? Like I think it's been a theme for a yeah. while now. Is people going, "Man, I am getting nothing for the guy." Before I left, I was bitching and moaning about it because when you're the guy trying to sell, you're sitting there going, "Why is no one? Come on, these are quality players. Someone come talk to me." And you get this ridiculous lowball offer from somebody who I wish those would stop. But like, I also get the standpoint where they're just kind of like, "Oh, well, you know, this is I don't know, I don't care." Like they're probably not thinking I'm going to be insulting. They're just thinking like, "Uh, oh, well, I guess I'll respond to this with some." But I mean, that also plays into the um, one of my comments when we we're talking about the trade deadline deals, right? Is uh, you get to the point where if you are going to make, if it is in Matt's plan to move away from Sean Huber, then at some point. Uh, which I don't think it will be. I think I think Sean Huber will be a hustler for another year without any problem. But if it is actually in Matt's plan, I, I am no longer going to be working with Sean Huber as my as my future. And so I am going to convert Sean Huber into as much future value as I can get. That as much future as value as I can get, sometimes you're going to have to take a deep breath and take less than you think you should. Just because your plan is to turn Sean Huber <laughs> into future value, <laughs> and so what is the price? You know, what is the market for superstars in future in future value? Right. It would be great if you are the New York Yankees and you can turn two months of Araldus Chapman into Glaber Torres and then go sign Araldus Chapman again, and for the same amount of money. I mean that that's like free players. Right. Um, um, and the other thing is that, you know, as you mentioned, that this isn't, you know, I don't think Las Vegas looks tremendously competitive this year and probably next year, although Recti is very good and um, I would not be surprised if he immediately turns this around. But he's only got to eat two years. You know, like this is a very movable deal. It sounds like a lot of money or portions of two years. He doesn't have to eat all of it because those are, you know, uh, 46 and 47 are team options. And if I were someone looking to pick up Huber, I would easily be able to say, you know what, if I can get years 32 and 33 on the cheap and um, from a stand, from a, you know, cost standpoint, not from a, uh, from a salary standpoint, not from a, what I'm going to give direct, but if right. I can get, you know, half or more of that salary eaten, then I can have those years at a very reasonable price. And then I take all of the responsibility for 46 and 47 on my own. You know, if he's dynamite and, 45 and you just want to say you know what i've got the cash i'll just because he's worth it at this price um i think that's fair this is a very it, it looks like a lot of money but it's a very movable deal um yeah it is definitely a movable deal um especially if 
uh, Matt can eat a bunch of celery and Matt's probably and sitting there going like, I don't want to eat any celery. Quit doing this. Shut up, guys. <laughs> well, I know, but that's, that's, there's all sorts of different permutations. And the point is Matt can work on a lot of these things. And uh, in fact, the mere fact that we're talking about Matt is the reason why this is such a interesting conversation to have out in the open is because, uh, you know, Matt is, you mentioned earlier on about the kind of deals that Matt makes, you know, I got a guy, take a guy, give me mm -hmm. two more guys. And you build up a farm system that way. You know, if Matt's goal is to build up a farm system, Huber is a guy he will use to build up a farm system, and he'll do essentially whatever it takes to do it. Yeah, if, he, if, Matt um, wants, if, Matt, if Rect wants to move him, he'll move him, and he'll get a good return. But, yeah, and I think he's also showing a bit of patience here. You know, if you look at what follow, watch what good GMs do, and Matt is a very good GM. You know, he's not out pressing the panic button on it at this stage and run time forward in another couple of weeks. And maybe you get an injury or two and teams in the market gets more flexible. The point right now though, is that the market is not obvious, <laughs> right? You're going to have to go out and do a little bit of work if you're in that kind of situation. So that uh, that's why sometimes you put a big name player out and you don't get a whole lot of, of responses that yes, he's a very valuable player. And yes, I love him a lot. I'd love to have him on my team. I just can't make it. And for example, in Yellow Springs, I'm, uh, one of the things going on here with all these really young players that are just getting into the stage where they're ending their arbitration, they're getting extended out and all that other good stuff. The problem set that I have, uh, for example, and I would guess there are other teams in that, in that camp, is that I am trying really hard to find ways to be able to extend and hold on to my core players. And all these damn arbitration figures that are out there that are like there's I've got maybe seven million dollars or eight million dollars that are tied up in what I call fake super two arbitration. There is no way these players are going to be eligible for super two two years from now. You look at their service time, it's just not going to happen. But they will be over two years. So out of the park accounts my uh, not a five hundred k year, but they will be three million dollars for that third year because they're in in super two land, right? When the calendar moves forward and it becomes now clear and obvious that they will never be yeah. um, able to be a super two, then OTP will remove those from my accounting ledger. But in the meantime, I can't sign my guys. <laughs> right. And it's a, it's a similar problem to the fact that if you've got a guy on a team option, you can't offer that money. Exactly. Um, and they need to fix that. Plain and simple, both of those things, they need to not count arbitration and team op options that you control um, vesting you could leave in but team options against future salary cap that is an error in yeah i've design. complained about that for many seasons now and we'll see whether ever anything can, happens but right because you can require arbitration and you can opt out and yeah it's right just, but regardless that is a fact of nature in the way right. that our financial system works right now and it constrains being able to move big players with salaries and team options that that you would normally say well i can get out of it yeah i can get out of it but if i take them then i can't re-sign ricardo mendoza or right. whoever and I, screw that you know i'm not i'm not going to uh, to strip out my my uh, plan that way for that um, you talked earlier on also about, I want to go back to the pinned thing, right? Value for the uh, Uber 
relievers. I think part of the some of the questions that I often get are how do you actually get those innings out of pitchers? So I think our league is getting stronger at guys who know how to actually push innings into relievers. Uh, we actually talked about Seattle having a poor bullpen. I think one of the things that Nathan needs to be looking at is how can he push more innings into his good relievers and keep his bad relievers off the field as much as possible. But I loved your conversation about is the Uber reliever actually as valuable as we think they are? You know, are you basically just sucking up all the war from relievers and sticking it into one spot <laughs> is another way of thinking about that. Right. You know, I do think that out of the park is a little bit too, uh, perhaps the injury field for relievers are not as devastating as they should be because you can see the Peter Grady's and now the Sean Huber's and so forth do this for you know, four, five, six, seven years in a row, whereas in the major leagues, you will find relievers who do go 150, 180, uh, even what Mike Marshall did, 200 and something innings when he won the Cy Young Award. Really, you don't see them doing that for eight years in a row. So some of it is a out-of-the-park manifestation, but I like your question. I don't know whether it is actually true that these mega relievers are – I think they're super valuable in that you don't have to have as deep of a bullpen, but I'm not sure that you wouldn't get as good of a performance out of three $3 million relievers as you would out of one. I, I think they're exceptionally valuable when when they're in their pre-extension phase, even at arbitration rates, right? Like these guys are tremendously valuable because absolutely, if I'm paying you 500K or 3 million or whatever, and you are providing 2.5 ERAs for three relievers worth of innings at a traditional rate. Yeah, absolutely. There is no question that there's value to that. When you have to pay them, and I think Huber's probably still mark below market value if you look at it from a dollar per war standpoint or whatever. But when you're talking about, let's say Huber, um, well, Huber's one of the best. Um, but let's say someone's, let's make up a guy that's, you know, two, 2.8 ERA making 13 million. Well, that could be, you know, three, four million dollar relievers. I, I think I can find three, four million dollar relievers that'll give me, uh, you know, like a 3.3 ERA. You know, maybe not. So it's not that I think that the, the, it's replaceable with a similar amount of cash. It's that I think the degradation uh, by using multiple players at, you know, a similar salary I, isn't as much as, you know, this isn't like you're just not using other players, right? Like you're just decreasing other. It's it's not like you've you've added an extra thing. Someone else was going to pitch those innings, and now they're not pitching those innings. And you know, it. I don't know. It's it's a. I I think they are valuable. I think they're a thing that everybody should be leveraging as much as possible because they're better than throwing out turds. But I don't know that once you start paying them which is you know similar for anything else but once you start paying them enough to be three other good relievers at reasonable salaries that the the value is as much as it as it was yeah i like that quite a bit cuz i think this the scaling of uh what the guy's salary is you know uh one 150 inning guy throws 150 innings right for 
in Huber's case, 12 million bucks, right? If you can find three guys who can throw uh, something close to as effective for 80 innings apiece, that's 240 innings at three million, four million, you can go $4 million a pop, right? For 240 innings. That means that you're providing 240, you know, quality innings over 150 innings, which is 90 to my high powered math. My ability right. to do pure uh, subtraction means that you got to find uh, with the super reliever concept, you got to find somebody who can throw 90 innings pitched uh, at a somewhat uh, reasonable, you know, uh, comparable rate to make that a, a value. And so when, when a guy is in his, pre-arbitration and even arbitration years, that's probably still a value. But once you get past that, that is actually an interesting uh, value field, right? Well, Cost value field. Right. And it's a very case-based thing, right? Because I'm not saying you can just go to free agency and snatch up three 80 inning 3.5 ERA guys uh, for 4 million a piece. Absolutely not. But you might already have one or two of those guys on your roster. And that's right. where it becomes like, a, is it, do I add this guy? Or do I go look for the third, the third one? Or, you know, like I think, you know, if prospects and money and stuff works, Seattle's actually a great destination for Huber because then they go, you know, based upon our conversation about their pith and the holes in their team, um, they go from somebody that we're like scratching our heads going, ah, they're going to fall off at some point to, nope, they fixed the problem. Like this is now a very real thing. So, you know, yeah. there's always, there's always fit. Yeah, I think that's that's true. You just have to do more work. And we talked about Brooklyn. Brooklyn would be a great fit. I just don't know that they got the the value to give for him, even if uh, you know that's that is Huber is clearly a value. And right. big pitchers who can throw lots of innings are clearly a value. But then that value uh, field across how does he fit into the usage pattern of a team? Which is, I think, the root of your question of is there actually value to a single pitcher throwing that kind of innings versus three or more, you know, that you can get in with an equal salary structure. You know, I think if you can get three good relievers, I mean, good, you know, upper quartile relievers that can throw 80 innings apiece, I would actually take that over Taron O'Makin, who's throwing 160. Right. right. And even, even if it's not as good of a rate, like if you tell me my choice is a 150, 160 innings of 2.5 ERA or three guys that can do 80 innings of 3.6 ERA. I take the three guys with the 3.6 ERA. Um, and maybe not 3.6, but maybe three, you know, I mean, there's I, a scale. I might uh, even take uh, 3.6 in it. I might take 3.4. Yeah. And, and the reason in my mind is, is largely that it's more injury proof. I lose one of my relievers, big deal. Right. Not big deal. It's, it's, it hurts. I got to do something about it. But you're in the same situation, and you lose McCracken or you lose Huber, Huber, and that's there went half your pen, you know, right. like this. So yeah, um, and that's the thing right now that um, the injury factor over 162 games is a is a pretty big deal when it comes right down to it. So anyway, now that was good. Uh, any other uh, thoughts, comments on that? I think I pretty much. Um, no, I think we can end there. Everything. I'm, I'm pretty proud of actually having useful things to say about something that I've never thought about before. I think that went pretty well. Like I've, <laughs> I've really never thought at all about that. And I think we came up with some actual intelligent things um, as opposed to just, you know, stuff that I've been harping on for years or looked into with a lot of research and, or there just made up. 
<laughs> there you go. And as long as we think that it's smart and intelligent, that's all that matters. So yep. that's, that, that goes with that. As demonstrated by all your Landis trophies. Oh, yes. Without any I'm question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, see, that just goes to prove the point. I think that the Heartland Division is a much more important trophy. So by definition, it must be right. I think you need to find a thing for me. And then we can just wedge in that little insult that we've got for each other. And, uh, yeah, the problem figure is, out a creative even, way even to though you it. don't have a team, you still got those little yellow trophies sitting in your avatar. So I, I don't know if I've got a leg to stand on there. <laughs> Well, there's got to be something. Uh, <laughs> I, it's not that there's got to be something. There are definitely things that I can be giving crap about. So. Alrighty. Well, I think we've pretty much uh, fallen off the edge of anything that's uh, valuable for any other person on the planet to listen to. So uh, I think with that, we'll call it an episode. I appreciated your time here today, Ted. Uh, lots of fun talking again and look forward to, to the next episode. Yep, always fun. You've been listening to the BBA Today, a podcast that covers the Brewster Baseball Association every day. Music is Bold Statement, available at fesleyandstudios.com and used with attribution. Be safe and well, and we will hear you again tomorrow.